Welcome back to another episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. My name's Sina and I love following the journeys of other young entrepreneurs. In this episode, I spoke with Jordan Palmer, the co-founder of Lixir Drinks, an innovative drinks brand specializing in flavored tonic mixers aimed at a younger audience. I know so many of you guys want to start a drinks brand and uh, I definitely had that in mind when Jordan came on the podcast and asked him a lot of questions around sort of like, I guess, the process and the building the brand and do you need funding and all this type of stuff. And so in this episode, we covered why Jordan actually decided to launch a drinks brand within this space and how differentiation is key given how crowded the market is. And secondly, how they found a drinks manufacturer and how they overcame the expensive large minimum order quantities through crowdfunding and strategies that you can actually utilize if you want to do the same with crowdfunding. And lastly, the costs that you may not consider when first starting a drinks brand and the vital question of, do you need funding to be able to grow a drinks brand as it's an extremely crowded market? I do ask this question. He had to think about it for a few seconds, but he gave an amazing answer. So please do listen to the very end of the episode for the answer to that question. I hope you do enjoy this episode. And if you do, please be sure to give a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. And as a thank you, I'll give you a shout out in the very next episode. So without further ado, let's jump straight in. Hey, Jordan, how are you doing? Hey, Cena. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, looking forward to uh, having a chat with you. Yeah, really looking forward to having you on, like listen, uh, talking to you for the next sort of 25 minutes or so. And thank you again for joining me. We're recording on a Friday evening, which um, is not the most popular time to record a podcast, <laughs> but we've, we're doing it. Yeah. How's your week been? It's good. Yeah, I've got, uh, well, I've got a gin and tonic in hand, actually, because it is Friday afternoon. So um, yeah, it's been been a busy one, actually. We're kind of getting into summer now and um kind of all that covid you know debacle is behind us hopefully um so yeah busy with yeah kind of summer trade and events when did you actually start elixir drinks so we literally just had our fourth anniversary um i think it was the 15th of may uh matt and i my co-founder sold our first bottle um into phoenix in newcastle um so that was kind of yeah classic uh hand delivering it ourselves. um interstore but yeah it's probably one of the most exciting kind of listings i think we get yeah so so what what is what is lixia just for people who don't know yeah sure so uh lixia drinks is a uh, tonic water mixer brand um it's naturally flavored low in calorie low in sugar and we're one of the few mixer brands on the market that is carbon neutral certified um and we also donate one percent of revenue uh to charity so Effectively, for every case of Lixia we sell, we provide 100 litres of clean drinking water. Um, and yeah, it's a it's very much kind of appealing to a younger generation. So when you look at kind of the tonic water landscape, it is quite traditional. Um, and we're trying to be, you know, a bit more contemporary and urban. Um, and as I say, yeah, just appeal to that next generation of, of drinker. There's no, there's no actual alcohol in it. It's just a mixer. Yeah, totally. Just a, a mixer. You can, um, you can have it neat as well. Like drinking tonic as a soft drink isn't kind of the most popular thing, but some of our um, consumers do have do do that, um, especially like the flavored variety. Um, but yeah, it's predominantly to be served with alcohol or kind of now we're seeing a lot of non-alcoholic spirits as well, um, which is paired with. Why did you decide to start it in the first place? Because like we'll probably get onto this a bit later, but the food and drink market is already especially crowded. But when you segment that down to mixers and like, I guess, non-alcoholic mixers or whatever, like that's still a really crowded market. Mm, Yeah. So 
Um, we were quite young, actually, when we founded it, Matt and I. I think we were about 24 um, at the time. We'd, we'd been a couple years out of uni. Um, we both went to Newcastle University uh, together. And um, weirdly, we are actually really old childhood school friends. So Matt and I first met uh, back in 1999. And we were like five or six years old. Um, but yeah, we were both graduates living up in Newcastle together um and both working uh in the spirits industry um just in like your classic graduate sales roles so um i was working for a, a company called diageo which um you might know they sell like guinness smirnoff yeah they're the biggest company yeah yeah like, like they are yeah, yeah um for, for globally, drinks yeah um and yeah. then matt was at william grant and sons which are a, a family-owned company, but they own Hendrix Gin and um, Disarano and uh, Sailor Jerry's, um, some really cool spirit brands. Um, so we both kind of got into like the drink space quite early on. And it was, it was kind of over Christmas um, in 2016, so about four or five years ago, uh, five or six years ago now. And um, we were, I think we were either hosting... Um, like a, a gathering with a few friends or we were at a gathering, I can't remember. But um, it was when like the flavoured gin boom was like really taking off and like you're seeing like rhubarb and yeah, blood orange. I do, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah, so it kind of like gin obviously became really cool and popular and then it kind of had that second wave when all the flavoured varieties came out. Um, but we were kind of sat around this table and there was like half a dozen bottles of different styles of gin on the table Um and we thought, actually, that's quite a lot of value just sat there. And especially when you're just starting out in your careers, you know, you don't necessarily want to be, you know, spending too much, you know, on alcohol um, or have too, you know, too much spend locked up in um, uh, like a drinks cabinet at home. Um, and I guess that's where the light bulb moment for Elixir was, because we just thought it made so much more sense to have like a good base spirit and then have flavoured um, tonics that you can compare it with. Um, because at the time there was, there's obviously kind of your, your two or three main brands that were out there. Um, but in terms of flavor variety, they all just did like an Indian tonic, a slim line. Yeah. I haven't come across any flavored ones actually. Mm. So they are, that's the thing. Like when we first had the idea, there wasn't really any on the market. And that was like the light bulb moment where like, we were like, you know, we, we could, um, we could do this. And I think we'd, we'd. Lixia wasn't our first idea. Like we'd always chatted about um, different business ideas in the past, but they were always a bit forced. And like Lixia was the first one where we thought actually there is there is a gap here. Um, and when we looked into you know what was on the market in a bit more detail, they did sit at that very traditional end that appealed to a slightly younger audience. Um, whereas for us in our twenties, when you look at kind of all the different spirit and beer categories, there was like a cool like. Um, distinctive brand that would stand out in each of those categories whereas for tonics there wasn't really anything that resonated with us and we felt it was a bit of a boring category um, so we felt there was definitely a gap for a brand that was a bit more youthful and kind of edgier and a bit more urban um, and then also with kind of this idea of like flavor innovation as well um, we thought we were onto something so um, what we did was we actually we had a few chats about it and then we went away over Christmas. Um, and then when we, we said to each other, when we come back in the new year, if we're still thinking about it, we'll, you know, pursue it and, and get to work. 
Um, so that's, yeah, it's end, ended up what we did. Um, but what were the kind of like risks for starting it? Because like, I guess when you're looking at a market like that, where I guess, you're, yeah, you're looking at like spirits, tonic pairings essentially. And it's like, yeah, as you said, there isn't a standout tonic brand, but I mean, I guess maybe a reason for that or like i guess like a common um disagreement from people that would buy it is like maybe it's because like the actual spirit is the hero within the the drink pairing the mixer isn't like actually like that valuable so do you i don't know did you get that sort of like comment from many people i think what helped with us was that um a lot of people like especially in drinks know like fever tree for instance who have done i really you know rate fever tree like they've done a fantastic job of because they they've started a lot earlier than um kind of the everyday consumer actually thinks but they had this you know really good marketing slogan that was you know three quarters of your drink is a mixer mixed with the best so um we felt that actually and when we looked into kind of market data a bit more um the the mixer and tonic space you know uh it was becoming more premium um, and it was increasing in value growth quicker than it was volume. Um, so people obviously were looking for more premium mixes and they do, you know, value it, value its importance just as much as the spirits. If you, if you drown your, you know, 40 pound bottle of gin in a, you know, really crap mixer, then you're kind of ruining it, aren't you? So, so it's all well and good, you know, having the idea, having that light bulb moment as as Jordan mentioned before, but I really wanted to ask him sort of after that phase of the, you know, the ideation and kind of like doing the market analysis, all that type of stuff, what is the practical next step to starting this drinks business? Because I've never been in, in drinks or any like kind of food and I, I know it's very challenging, especially when finding a manufacturer and, and all that type of stuff. So I really want to ask him, what was the next step? What do you have to do first to start a drinks business? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, we were fairly like green when it you know came to starting a brand as I say we were working in um the spirits industry and sales roles so you know we knew kind of market trends um and we had you know a good network um but we were really starting from scratch but I think because we were actually quite you know so young and we didn't really um I guess we had that sort of element of fearlessness to us a bit we didn't really know what we were stepping into um and I think, to be honest, when we first came up with the idea, we thought it might just be a bit of a side hustle. Um, and we didn't really realize where it, what kind of journey um, it would take us on. But um, one of the things we did early on, which I'd say is probably we, we've carried on doing it. And it's probably um, one of the best things we've done is when we don't know stuff, just always finding, you know, really good people that can help um it doesn't matter kind of what area of business that's in so um we obviously first thing we did was actually just you know go on google which i think kind of every founder starting out probably does um at the beginning and we found a um a a guy who was a consultant that was specializing in startups and he was he'd well he'd left his position he was a ceo at a um, really well-known uh water company and Although he hadn't done tonics specifically, he had a really good network on, you know, manufacturers to speak to, um, labelers, you know, what you have to do to actually get ready for launching in trade, um, coming up with, uh, you know, kind of a generalized business plan, branding agency, kind of he had that whole network, um, you know, locked down. So 
and we really his name was Paul we really utilized Paul for like the first um, six to 12 months um, as we were kind of going from that idea phase to to launching um, so he I mean we obviously led it but he did he, he, he was just kind of like a, a really good networker and a kind of door opener I guess into into meeting the the right people because I I think we didn't realize going into it that the entry uh, the barriers to entry sorry was so are so high for, for tonics and mixers like well what what so what are those barriers to entry just for people to, to understand so usually when a customer goes to a supplier so we would say we're the customer for instance looking to find a bottler you know you think that you, you reach out to a bottler and they'd just be happy to speak to you um, but they get inundated with people like us that just have an idea and they're looking for a you know a new bottler but bottlers just want to be producing uh you know products at scale they don't really want to be wasting their time with people that have got ideas and they want to do a really small trial run and then there's the risk it might not sell and they've invested all that time and effort in change parts on their production line um, and they never get a subsequent order from them so whereas i thought you know we ring up a, a bottling provider um and you know they'd be all for it they literally they weren't so paul actually um his just because he had that relationship with a lot of the the manufacturers out there um i guess that kind of gave us a chance early on um so that's one thing and then obviously like the working capital you know um you can't just uh, for, for soft drinks that are like carbonated because it's not something you can necessarily just make at home you need that kind of manufacturing facility um the minimum order quantities tend to be quite substantial yeah um, i've heard they're crazy they're like maybe ten thousand bottles like minimum it's yeah, crazy so i think that's roughly yeah it was, that's something like what our first run was um and also they you know they require a payment up front and then you've got to wait for the production run and then you've got to sell it to a customer who probably wants 30 to 90 days payment terms so you've got kind of like a minimum of like a four month cash flow gap where you've paid for something and you're not getting paid so um definitely you know it's one of the reasons why um we actually decided to do a small crowdfund um just after we launched just uh, sorry just before we launched um, to help fund that first production run. That's really interesting. So what? So you went on one of these crowdfunding platforms and you asked for money with, with like a, a good video, I, I'm guessing, I guess, told them that that money will be used for that supply run. And I guess, I guess, how did you sell that, that crowdfunding? Yeah, so we, um, one of the things I should mention, actually, kind of in this period of going from the idea to launch is a few months into doing a bit of research on Lixia, um, we realized there just wasn't enough hours in the day. So Matt and I kind of made the decision to quit our sales roles. Um, and we took up bartending. So we were doing that like 35, 40 hours a week, kind of evenings and weekends, but then that gave us the daytime in the week to focus on Lixia. Um, so when we come round to the crowdfunding, we were actually we this kind of quite organic um, but, you know, quite nice uh, kind of startup story emerged that we were kind of two, ben two bartenders from the Northeast um, looking to launch a drinks brand. Um, so, yeah, we decided to, to do this crowdfund. And at the time, we only had 
visuals of what the bottles would look like and what the flavors were but we really played on that kind of bartender so no no video yeah we did we got a company in um a small production company in newcastle to do a video of us actually in the bar we worked in um so we were just like you know trying to be um really excited on camera just you know chatting chatting to people about kind of the idea what flavors we wanted to launch the fact we you know were working in the drinks industry and then took up bartending um and that we were just you know trying to mix up the tonic water category a little bit um and we didn't really know what the um what the response to the the page was going to be when we um when we put it up um but it it was a 30, 30 day campaign and you could basically um people were pledging to to buy different packages of elixir um so it was a it was an all or nothing campaign so if you don't meet your target you don't actually get any of the funds and what was what was the target that you put and what was the target in your mind because sometimes they're different right the the target that you actually want versus the target that you you set on the website so the target was it's something like 14 or 14 and a half thousand um and that was just to see us through the first production run basically um up until that point matt and i just kind of had put kind of any personal savings we had into it. Um, but we needed that first crowdfund to be a success to carry out the first production run. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the target. We overfunded by, it was something like 16 and a half thousand in the end. Um, you overfunded by 16 and a half thousand. No, the, the, so the final number was 16 and a half. Oh, right. So we we overfunded by like two, two K, but, um, it turned out we thought it was just going to be kind of a way to get some funding in, but actually we got loads of local PR from it, which was great. Um, and also we had in- organic, organic PR. Yeah, literally, like we didn't, wow. we, you know, didn't reach out to anyone. Um, I think it was the Chronicle, which is a local um, paper in Newcastle. You know, decided to do a full piece on us. Um, the university at Newcastle, where we originally from. Um, they wanted to, you know, get involved and put something on their website. Um, we even had some, uh, kind of independent pubs and bars in Newcastle that got in touch saying, look, once you've done it, I'll stock you, um, which was really good. And then we had in the end, I think it was like 260 pledges, um, which are effectively like brand ambassadors and they were dotted about all over the country. So, um, anyone kind of starting out that kind of doesn't really want to give away equity at the start but they just need a bit of working capital to you know get the ball rolling um something like a crowdfunder or a kickstarter is a really good way to do it and you, and you generated like organic leads from those pubs and like that and then also the pr like that was yeah was that, by the way jordan actually let me ask you this was there anything any key success factors when it comes to this crowdfunding I guess, strategy, or did you just make the video, make the page and just leave it and just do it organically? Like what was the, how did it get to that stage where you were getting organic leads coming in? You got the PR, like what was the strategy there? So you, I think, I don't know if it's changed cause it was quite a while ago when we did it, but you don't actually get as many, there are a few organic leads, but there's not as many as you first think. So we really did have to put the work in and kind of network over that time to get to reach the funding. So I remember when we were working bar shifts, you know, anyone that was coming in, you know, we could just start a conversation with, we were chatting to them about the crowdfunder. 
Um, and, you know, you might then log on to the app in the evening and see that person's pledged, you know, £40 or something um, just because they quite like the idea. Um, so we did really have to kind of, I guess, network and get people to visit the site um, because it is at any one time there are so many pages on like a crowdfunder um, that you do need, I guess, that traffic to, to you know, start driving some momentum um we obviously like really focused on friends and family so when the page went live we'd already told a handful of people about it and we got them to pledge the minute the page went live um and that kind of shot us up to kind of page one on crowdfunder um because it was getting that traffic um and i'd say like having a good uh concise video as well would probably be the last thing like you don't want a thousand words on a page you just need a few few bullet points and just a video because people you know people want to watch that that's that's incredible and then so you 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 raised that money it went straight to the supply run you made your first batch you already had a few customers from the crowdfunding mm. what was the next what was the next stage after that so i think we sold the initial run in something like two to three months so we sold it quicker than we first thought and we were um we were sort of bartending full-time during this period um and I guess in terms of like, although we'd had a couple of years under our belt in drinks, we were so, this was like the first business we'd really got off the ground. And I guess we were sort of, you know, figuring things out for the first time. And in our heads, looking back now, I think we thought that like, you produce this stock, you sell it, the profit you make from that, you know, you use that you profit, re- you reinvest, reinvest it, it yeah, and yeah, you yeah. go again. but you know, it's such a competitive market and there's so many associated costs with it that we just knew, you know, that's just not going to be feasible. Um, and there was, I guess, that sort of tipping point when we we were kind of coming, you know, to the end of the initial um, first batch, you know, after like selling, selling out where we thought we kind of need to actually get some proper investment into the business. So at, at that point, we could both just take a basic salary and go full time with it. And then give us like a 12 month runway, you know, just to cover cash flow. And so, you know, we didn't go crazy in our first year. We, um, you know, in terms of like marketing or anything like that, but, you know, you, to compete and just to get off the ground, you, you know, there are quite a few associated costs. Um, and we were on such a shoestring budget at the start that we knew we needed um, to go out and get investment. So um, we were quite fortunate. So our, our first investors um, that are still our, they're our lead investors today, a father and son duo. Um, I actually kind of knew of from um, my school network. Um, and I told the son about the idea kind of a year and a half prior to them investing. Um, so they'd always kind of had an interest in the brand and what we were doing. So um, when we went to them with a, you know, our first business plan and pitch deck, um they'd kind of had that kind of year and a half of kind of seeing you know hearing from me you know what we were up to and then obviously seeing the crowdfund do well um so yeah it was quite um they were just sort of really excited to get on board by that point um so it was good in a way that we you know we didn't have to a lot of people i think you know they they realize they need money but they don't know where to find an investor i think we were quite fortunate really that um you know, we had someone in, in mind from the off. Jordan, let me ask you a question because 
you so you had that first supply run. I guess the demand was pretty good. So you you obviously got the the brand right, the flavor profiles correct, and all the other stuff. But I'm really keen to ask this question because I know loads of people listening might be thinking of launching a drinks brand or indeed like a food brand because it's so competitive and the brands that you're competing with like Diageo like the, you know they're huge brands with like huge you know portfolios as well as like massive budgets behind them do you need to raise money uh, investment to be able to compete with these guys that's a really good question because there's some success stories where you know the the brand has just gone from zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye um, and they haven't necessarily needed to. I'd say for when you're doing something like us where, you know, tonic waters have been around for years, we're not really inventing the wheel, but we're just trying to do something different or a bit better than our competition. Um, but what we've what we soon realized in kind of our space is that it is a bit of a pay to play industry. So there's not actually many competitors in mixers. There's kind of, you know, maybe a dozen of us. Um, but the majority of them are massive corporations. Yeah, I was going to say, like, because a lot of people think, oh, there's not that many competitors. But if you look deeper, if it's if those like small batch of competitors are controlled by huge companies, then that's it's probably worse, if anything, than like loads of other small companies. Yeah, yeah definitely. So um, for us, I'd say, you know, raising is has been really important. To, you know, if we if we hadn't fundraised, we wouldn't be in the position we were today. And I think. A, People, when they start out, including when we did, we were really skeptical about it because we thought, oh, you know, we're going to dilute our ownership and our shareholding. But, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's better to have um, a small percentage of something that's worth a lot than a large percentage of, you know, something um, something that isn't. Um, and I think as, as well, like we didn't realise, again, because I think it's the first time we were doing it, how much capital, you know, we'd need to raise. So... There's some startup drinks brands now that, you know, you, you see them come out of nowhere, but then you find out they've raised, you know, two and a half million or something crazy. And they've assembled a team of 15 and, you know, they're going to they're going to hemorrhage massive losses for the first year or so. But they are really just, you know, fueling, fueling uh, growth. Just to just to give context to people, because I I don't know this market well at all, but it's just like just to give context. What are those? hidden costs that I guess you didn't really think about before when, when launching. So you just mentioned, yeah, it's not, I guess maybe hidden costs are the wrong word, but I guess costs that you didn't really account for when you first went yeah. into it. That's probably the best so way to it's ask not it. Cost, but it's definitely cash flow. So what I said earlier on, there's kind of that four month gap from when you might have to pay for a production run to when you're getting paid. Um, that it's kind of, you know, cash, I think cash flow is what kills a lot of, you know, startup food and drink businesses um certainly in our space when you realize how competitive it is and you need to you know factor in a listing fee or a marketing spend to every you know pitch you're you're tendering for um obviously we're as we've grown we're sort of a team of of eight now but obviously there's staffing costs um and just it depends how i think we've always had quite a lean uh, marketing budget and we've you know we've tried to make a lot of noise but very cost effectively but um yeah i guess because you know we're not marketeers or branding experts you know all that kind of marketing spend um as well soon soon stacks up 
Jordan, we're going to have to wrap up there. It was so great to have you on the podcast. Um, I loved. I always love having food and drink brands on the podcast. It brings such a different angle because it's an industry that that I I have never been in before. So it's, it's very interesting to hear your story. What's I guess coming up for Lixir, and how can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, so we've um, we've got a very busy summer planned um, because of COVID. The last two years, we hadn't done any uh, in real life events. You know, we'd been very much focusing our attention to kind of online and that digital space. But we've got a very busy uh, events calendar this summer and autumn. Um, we're launching a new range. I can't say what it is, but um, it's coming out next month. So I think just after this, this will be airing. Just after this recording. Yeah, so um, definitely uh, either our website, lixiadrinks.co.uk, or kind of all our social media handles um, are at lixiadrinksuk. Um, it will all be getting updated on there. Um, so, yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on the podcast again. And I'll catch you very soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Millennial Entrepreneur. And if you did enjoy, please be sure to leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts because it helps the podcast grow so much. And as I said on the previous episode, we get such a variety of businesses on the podcast. And I always have, you know, the education and an honest truth in mind when it comes to growing these different types of businesses. I want to give you guys so much value because I know so many of you want to get into business or you already are in business. And this podcast will hopefully help you in whatever business you guys are growing because, you know, we get we get business from all different sizes and you know, industries and, and different types of stuff, different strategies they've used. So, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this one. And if you did, share, review, all that good stuff because it helps the podcast grow and reach more people, help more people, which is, you know, the ambition of mine. So thank you so much for listening again and I'll catch you in the next one.